The text for this morning is taken from Nehemiah chapter 2, and we'll be looking at the verses 19 to 20. Again, you can find that on page 549 of your pew Bibles. But when Sanblat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they laughed at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? So I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we his servants will arise and build, but you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. So far. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, have you ever done the trust exercise? That exercise that many people do in order to establish trust and sometimes just to break the ice in a group of people that don't know each other very well. One person will close their eyes and then someone says, I'll catch you. And then that person leans back and the person behind them catches them. Next time, they lean back and they fall a foot before they're caught. And then someone will put them on a chair and then they'll truly begin to lean back and fall before one or more people catches them. When I was young and reckless, at least younger than I was now, then I even did it with a group of friends off of the railing of a porch, falling back. A seven-foot fall and six people below catching you. I don't recommend that. You may be willing to fall six inches. You may be willing to fall a foot or three feet, or maybe even off the back of a deck. But what if somebody asked you to fall back off of a skyscraper? No parachute on your back, no nets to catch you, just the promise, I'll catch you. Do you trust me? Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, I bring you the word of God under the following theme and points. Trust the God of heaven. And we will see this morning how this relates to Nehemiah. First, that they are starting in misery. Second, a bold proposition being brought forward. And third, building in faith. So before we launch into our passage, let's take a quick moment to recap where we are in Nehemiah. In the first chapter of Nehemiah, he's been working faithfully in the service of King Artaxerxes as the cupbearer. Although he is living in luxury and a position of power, we can see in his heart that the land of Judah is close to him. And his heart rests on the city of God's favor. It rests on Jerusalem. When his brother Hanani returns after a stint in the Holy Land, Jeremiah asks for a report. Hearing that the gates are burned, the walls are broken down, and the city is in disgrace, he's cut to the heart. He knows and confesses that the fact that the city 
is facing disaster is due to the sin of himself and of the people. He confesses his sin, his people's sin, and the sin of his fathers to God, sitting in mourning for four months. And he calls on God to remember. Remember that he is their God. Remember that they were his people. And remember his promise to the people that if they repented, he would return to them. And he asked them to show this remembrance by opening an opportunity to talk to the king. After four months of mourning, this opportunity comes and he gets his answer from God. Everything falls into place. All that is required is for him to leave behind everything that he knows and loves. All of the comforts, all of the wealth and the power of the richest and most powerful empire on earth. And he's left with the question, do I trust God? Will I go? And in going, will I commit to obedience? It's a scary thing. He has no idea what he's getting himself into. He knows that it won't be a walk in the park. Last time we looked at Nehemiah 2, then we saw the groundwork being laid for fierce opposition. Sanballat, a pagan, and Tobiah, whose name meant Yahweh is good, who were supposed to be one of the people of God, put, who put the interests of his position as an Ammonite official and his kingdom over that of the kingdom of God. These were in opposition. And yet, despite all that, Nehemiah decides to go ahead with it. God has opened this doorway and he's going to walk through. He's going to commit to the kingdom work of God, not because he sees himself as being particularly faithful. In fact, in chapter 1, he confesses his own faithlessness. But because he trusts in the faithfulness of God to carry him through. The first part of Nehemiah's stay would have been very pleasant. We come to the opening verse of our passage and we read, So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. These would have been a very comfortable three days. As a royal official, a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes himself, no less, Nehemiah would have received a royal welcome. Entering with a retinue supplied by the king of kings, Artaxerxes I, with letters commissioned by the king to allow him safe passage and a rank above that of anyone around him, he would have been received in true, with true Middle Eastern hospitality. Many people would be coming to greet him, wanting to curry favor with King Artaxerxes through him, and he would be respected and honored. He's in a dangerous place now. He can, if he wants, settle down and just enjoy the flattery he receives. To celebrate all the comforts. The book of Nehemiah leaves us in suspense. Will he carry out what he means to do? He's told no one yet. What if after all of this, God's background work, even moving the heart of the king of Persia himself, Nehemiah decides to do a token amount of work and then settle in and enjoy the rest of his stay there in comfort. But then, on the third day, night falls. And God moves in the heart of Nehemiah, this cupbearer from Babylon, once again. 
Nehemiah is stirred up to begin his task once more, to exercise his trust once more, and to take stock of the position that his city is found in. Was his brother right when he brought back his report? Was his report about the state of the gates and the walls faithful and true? Likely using torches and moonlight to light the way, they would weave in and out of rubble around the walls of Jerusalem, examining the wall every step of the way. The city is in rough shape. At one point, Nehemiah can't even continue through a particular gate on the back of his mount and so is forced to detour. What has become of his beloved city? What has happened to the place that his grandparents would have spoken of so fondly? Joy of all the earth, she proclaims her maker's worth. In the north, the city towers. There the great king shows his powers. So, what happened to this city? With its walls stretching up from the mountain like a crown upon it. From one gate to another, everything is broken down. The city is in disgrace. God has indeed punished this city, and Nehemiah can see this so clearly. But with repentance, would God bless them once more? He promised he would. Nehemiah remembers this promise. Could Nehemiah trust him to carry it out? What an easy thing it would have been at this point in time for Nehemiah to step back. How easy it would have been for him to throw up his hands and cry out, Lord, you've thrown more into my lap than I can handle. I know you promised what you promised, but it's too hard. I can't deal with this. No one knows yet what his plan was, and Nehemiah emphasizes this for a second time in verse 16. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the others who did the work. And again, we are left hanging. We can see that everything is lying there in misery. It's a miserable start. And having seen the great difficulty that is faced, the huge undertaking that this task will be, we are left to see what will Nehemiah's response be? How will God continue his work through his people at this point in time? We are left looking to the Lord. This is our second point. Returning from his night out, Nehemiah confronts the Jews, priests, and nobles, and the officials about the reality of the situation. You can see that in verse 17. Then I said to them, You see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. There are two things that I want you to notice about this verse. First, notice the language that Nehemiah uses. He says, you see the distress that we are in. Let us build, that we 
may no longer be a reproach. He's not saying, look at the mess that you've gotten yourselves into. But he's saying, we, as God's people, are in trouble. We're in this together. Second, he calls his people to action. He doesn't want them to be scorned by the people who only seek to take advantage of them, who seek to prey on the people of God. But he doesn't leave it there. He doesn't just leave it as a call to action. Let's get going. But he gives them reason to hope. He gives them reason to have courage. A courage that comes from God. He says, And I told them of the hand of my God which had been good upon me, and also of the king's word that he had spoken to me. With these words, the people of Judah are encouraged to take the plunge. They are encouraged to close their eyes to their personal view of what the future may hold out and step forward in trusting in God. Their sin, their unfaithfulness that was mentioned before doesn't bind them any longer. They have turned in repentance. And Now, on the basis of what the Lord has done for them, on the basis of his faithfulness towards them, they move forward in trust. They are able to say the words, let us rise up and build. There are many of you today who are sitting in the same position that things may seem grim and you feel the need to rise up You feel the necessity of rebuilding. Maybe it's something in your lives that went wrong, that you've given up in one way or another, that you've gotten trapped by one particular sin or another, or that relationships that were once so good have broken down because of sin, and you need to rebuild. Maybe you feel as if your life is a reproach, as if the devil is besieging you and mocking you, and you see the need to rebuild. How do you go forward from here? Brothers and sisters, if you are in this position, what do you see as the driving force behind your hope for change and the future? What do you see as the thing that will make life better for you. If only I was more self-controlled. If only the situation that I was in would change. If only this other person in this relationship with me would treat me better. If only X, then my life would be so much better and change would be so much easier. Imagine for a moment if this had been the approach that was taken in this passage. We're a reproach. If only our situation was better. If only the walls were in a bit better shape. If only the people involved in my situation were more repentant and easier to get along with. But that wasn't the response, was it? There were a few reasons for this. One reason in particular for this, pardon me, 
At the end of the day, Nehemiah knew that he himself was not the single driving force behind what would come to pass. It was not a particular change in situation that was a single driving force. It was not what they were able to do, what they were able to accomplish, their own willpower that was going to be able to make this happen. Every single advance that had been made so far, every single opportunity that had been opened, even the ones that came at a high personal cost for himself, every single opportunity came at the hands of the Lord. Nehemiah was beginning to see in a very real way the truth that we read in Psalm 127, verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Too often in our lives we try to go it alone and we run into trouble. We think, I'll come back to God when I've got my life sorted out. I'll pray to him more often when I'm less ashamed to come before him. But what you see here is that you cannot wait until then. You can't wait until you have things figured out because you will not figure them out for yourselves. If you aren't constantly bringing it up before the Lord, coming to him in prayer and with his word, if you aren't seeking out those who will help you and sharpen you as iron sharpens iron, then your situation will not improve. If you remove the Lord from the, from the situation, then your situation will not improve. We ought not to run, even when we sin, brothers and sisters. If anything, our sin should spur us to turn around, to repent, to seek the Lord more fervently, more passionately, more frequently. Recognizing at the end of the day and all of that, that our only hope for success is in God. As we read in Philippians 2 verse 13, it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Without him, we can do nothing. Without him, we have no hope. Brothers and sisters, we may face overwhelming odds. We may face sin that so easily entangles but if we seek strength for obedience outside of ourselves, if we passionately cry out to God while we strive to do his will, he will hear us. Not on the basis of what we've done. We deserve nothing. But he will hear us on the basis of his own faithfulness, that rock which will not waver. Do we trust him to carry us through? Do we Call on him when we feel desperate and down, begging him for the strength to go on. Will we take the plunge, even if it means sacrifice, giving up what will make life easy and trust in him? 
Will we take this bold proposition, this reliance on the Lord, and move forward in trust? This is our third point, building in faith. Beloved congregation, God will hear us and supply us the strength necessary to carry on for one more day, one day at a time. But the point of this passage, as we move through it, we recognize that the point of this passage is not that our situation will suddenly become easier because we have chosen to close our eyes and to present ourselves in trust to God, to put our hope in God. Our passage encourages us to turn to the Lord despite our situation, to trust in him despite our situation. Consider where we find Nehemiah at the end of this passage. What is the first thing we see after they begin their good work? Is it success? Do we see people flocking in from the nations around? Well, certainly we see some help coming from towns that are around, a little bit south, a little bit north. We see some of the leadership showing up, other members of the leadership, well, taking a step back. We see the priesthood stepping up to get involved. They're the first ones mentioned, in fact. But Elisha, the high priest, well, his son, we read later on in Nehemiah, his son is the son-in-law to Sanballat, and he himself is very closely allied to Tobiah. Do we see the faithful flocking back to serve the Lord? No. Instead, we read, but when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they laughed at us, and they despised us, and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? The first thing we see here is opposition. The first thing is mockery and ridicule. And not only from people outside like Sanballat and Geshem, but even from people within the ranks of the people of God. We see Tobiah's name cropping up again. From all around. Arabia to the south. Ammon nearby and Sanblat in Samaria, the governor of Samaria, to the north. If they join together, these people can be an existential threat to the people of God. They mock, they ridicule, they scorn the people of God for seeking to live in obedience to him, striving to work in building up the kingdom of God once again, demonstrating their trust in him. And they begin fabricating grounds to oppose it suggesting that the Jews are preparing to rebel. This is something that you'll find to be a reality in your own life too. When you commit yourself to the work of the Lord, the first thing that you'll often find is ridicule and opposition. When you commit yourself to trusting in God, not due to what you've done, but due to the faithfulness of Him, when you commit yourself to this, people will look at you And they'll say, are you crazy? They'll find mocking and ridicule. 
The devil will whisper lies in your ears telling you that life will be better if you just give up. The world will tell you that God's standards are way too high and everyone else is doing what you're doing anyways. Your own flesh will betray you telling you that you just can't keep on going. You don't have the strength to carry on fighting. What can we do in these times? Psalm 56 says it much more beautifully than I could at this point in time. We'll open up to that for a moment. Psalm 56. I want to read verses 3 to 11 with you. You can find that on page 655. Psalm 56, starting at verse 3. Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear. What can flesh do to me? All day they twist my words. Their thoughts, all their thoughts are against me for evil. They gather together. They hide. They mark my steps. When they lie in wait for my life, shall they escape by iniquity? In anger, cast down the peoples, O God. You put my, you number my wanderings. Put my tears into your bottle. Are they not in your book? When I cry out to you, then my enemies will turn back. This I know because God is for me. In God, I'll praise his word. In the Lord, I'll praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? There is sorrow here. There is a recognition of the opposition here. And there is a recognition of that feeling of being overwhelmed. He says, put my tears into your bottle. It's not easy. We like nice conclusions. We like to see God stepping in to save the day the moment we cry out to him. And sometimes he does choose to do exactly that. But sometimes he works in more subtle ways, having a much broader perspective than we do and sanctifying us to hardship, through hardship. What we see in this passage in Nehemiah is not an easy answer. We don't see instant results. Like we read in the book of Psalms here, we see tears, we see sorrow, we see being overwhelmed. We don't see instant results, but we do see, despite all of that, if we go back to Nehemiah, we do see, despite all of that, a quiet trust expressed in God. Let's look to Nehemiah 2, verse 20. There we read, So I answered them, and I said to them, The God of heaven himself will prosper us, Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. He's saying, God will answer us. If we trust in him and depend on him, he will give us strength to serve him day by day. 
because of his faithfulness, because we trust in him, because we trust in this promise, we will arise and build. And then he closes with the more pertinent statement. You have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. What right then do you to have, have to talk back to us, the people of God? What right do you have to dictate to us? We are God's people and we only answer to one master. And we can respond in the very same way. When we face opposition in living in trust in the Lord, what right do, we, do our circumstances, the people opposing us, or even our own flesh, our will and desires, what right do they have to dictate to us? We will struggle with them, certainly. They won't magically disappear. But we deny them the right, the authority to tell us to give up to give up our desire to faithfully please the Lord, serve the Lord, because we trust the one whom we belong to to prosper us in our work. Yes, we trust the one to whom we belong because we recognize that we are not our own. And we see that so much more today. As Christ himself said in John 17, I have manifested your name. He's praying to God here. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me that they may be one as we are one. We have a faithful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who has died for us and who has bought us with his precious blood. How much more, having recognized that we have this Savior who has done this for us, can we trust? Can we trust? We will build in faith. Not because of who we are, how great we are. Not because of all of that, but because we are not our own. We continue because we have a greater power on our side. We belong to Jesus Christ, and nothing will separate us from him. Amen.